When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, listeners. Jennifer here, and I hope that you enjoyed our recent Facts versus Fiction season of Art Curious. I am back in your feed today, and I'll be popping in and out over the next couple of months with some bonus episodes from our live shows captured on Fireside. Today's conversation features my chat with Professor Jeffrey H. Jackson to discuss his latest book, Paper Bullets, all about the incredible artists Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, two women who risked their lives to defy the Nazis. This is an awesome real-life tale of using subversive tactics to disrupt Hitler's crew, and I loved this book, and you are not going to want to miss this conversation. So in the show notes and blog post for today's episode, I'll include links to order Jeffrey Jackson's book. And of course, I want to remind you to join us on a future episode of Art Curious Live on Fireside. You can register today for a free Fireside account using my link, firesidechat.com slash Jennifer Dassel. And now on with the show. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing well. We are here. Welcome to our Curious Live. Thanks so much for inviting me. I am so happy to have you here. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jennifer Dassel. I am the host of the Art Curious podcast, which explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And on Art Curious Live on Fireside, what I love to do is to talk about art and artists and art history with authors. And I am so excited to have Jeffrey H. Jackson here with me today on Fireside. Jeffrey is a professor of history at Rhodes College, and his most recent book is Paper Bullets, Two Artists Who Risked Their Lives to Defy the Nazis, which was long listed for the 2021 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction and was selected as an Editor's Choice Best of the Best for 2020 by Booklist. He is also the author of Paris Underwater, How the City of Light Survived the Great Flood of 1910, and Making Jazz French, Music and Modern Life in Interwar Paris, both of which have been received with great acclaim. Jackson is a sought-after public speaker and commentator who has appeared in documentary films on television and has been interviewed on radio and podcasts. He received his BS in History Summa Cum Laude with high honors from Vanderbilt University in 1993 and a PhD in History from the University of Rochester in 1999. At Rhodes College, he teaches courses in modern European history, cultural history, French history, environmental studies, and interdisciplinary humanities. And in 2021, Jackson won the prestigious Clarence Day Award for Outstanding Research, which is Rhodes' highest honor for faculty. Welcome, Jeffrey H. Jackson. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. 
That is quite an incredible biography you have. Congratulations on all of your success, both with Paper Bullets and and also all your previous books and your work at Rhodes. Thanks so much. I always say it keeps me out of trouble, if nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I love it. And I was so excited because your publisher reached out to me last year and asked if I would be interested in receiving an advanced copy of Paper Bullets. And the moment that I heard that it was about Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, or Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Malherbe, I was completely on board because these are two artists whom I have to say I don't know a whole ton of about until reading your book, but I knew of them and of their earlier works, and I was so excited. So I wanted to start by asking you, how did you come across the story? How did you become interested in writing about these two women? I have to give full credit to my wife, who actually is an art historian. And <laughs> I, I always say that I always listen to my wife. And when she told me about uh, a little bit about Cahoon and Moore, because she'd been teaching uh, about them in a history of photography class that she had taught for a number of years. And so when she told me about them, she said, you should look at these people. They're really interesting. And she knew a little bit about the 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 anti-Nazi resistance story, but not a lot. But really, I started by looking at the photographs. I started looking at the art that they produced. And like you say, a lot of people know of them, know a little bit about them, but don't know about them in great detail. So you're not alone in that. But as I said, looking at the photos and then reading a little bit of the stuff that had been written about them, I just became fascinated by their story, certainly by their art, which is it's beautiful. It's shocking. It's strange. It's mm-hmm. you know amazing. It's out there in some ways. Somebody early on, and when I was working on this project, and I was showing the photos to this, a friend said, this, "These photos are ugly. Why do you want to work on this <laughs> topic?" So obviously, people have a wide range of of reactions. But but once I started looking into not just the art, but then also what they did during the war, I decided I really wanted to to know more about them. And so for me, looking at their art that has become famous, you know, the art that hangs in museums and in galleries, the, the photography in particular that they're known for, to me, that's connected very deeply to the work that they do during the war. So for me, it's all really of a piece. Oh, absolutely. I have to say that it was really wonderful for you. I think very early on, you assert how much of a collaboration and how much of a partnership that these two women had, not just in terms of their personal relationship, but also in terms of the artwork. I really only came across Claude Cahoon in my early art historical studies as an undergraduate, for example. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until much later that I actually learned that, for the most part, those weren't self-portraits that Lucy Schwab was creating, that they were collaborations with Suzanne. And I I really love that. I feel like for the longest time that had been pushed by the wayside a little bit. Could you speak to who these women were and what their relationship and their working relationship was together? Yeah, absolutely. And that question of collaboration and partnership is absolutely central to the book. But something that has really, as you say, it has been pushed to the side, just in terms of thinking about their background. So they were born, both of them were born in Nantes in southern France. They, I talk about them as daughters of wealth and privilege. So they had money, they had influential families. Lucy, who would later change her name to Claude Cahoon, her father was an owner and editor of the local newspaper. Suzanne, who would later change her name to Marcel Moore, her father was the head of the medical school. So they knew each other from high society and from wealthy circles in Nantes, really from the time they were very young, from just they played together basically as kids and grew up together. 
And then at some point um, in their teens, they also fell in love. And so they were a loving couple, a lesbian couple. That's essential really to the story because that is part of the framework then for thinking about their artistic partnership and their life partnership and how they would sustain each other through the really difficult years of the war. But as they, as they grew up, they both were creative, Lucy really as a writer, Suzanne as an illustrator, and, but then they also collaborated on photography. They seemed to only have ever owned one camera for their whole lives, and they didn't know how to develop their own film. They didn't own any special lighting equipment or anything. They just owned this camera. I don't know where they got it from, perhaps from a family member. They might have bought it themselves. But, but they used that camera and they produced these amazing photographs. And that really is then the stuff that they become known for. But they're also forgotten for a long period of time. They, so they go to Paris in the 20s and 30s and they're there and they're part of the avant-garde scene. But once they leave Paris, they, they, they drop off the scene and, and basically they get left out of the art historical narrative for a long time. And it's not really until the 1980s that they get rediscovered. And when they do get rediscovered, they, it's really only talked about as Claude Cahoon. Right. Um, because she's really the one in the photographs, all of the, with, with a few exceptions, the bulk of the photographs are photos of Lucy in this persona as Claude Cahoon. And so I think a lot of people just attributed them to Cahoon as the genius, as the, the creator, without really understanding that personal context of who they were, of their background, and in particular of their relationship. I think you, you miss a lot of that. And so part, one of the things that I've tried to really do in this book is to help to restore Marcel Moore Suzanne to this understanding of this work. Absolutely. And I like that you do that. And you also give this wonderful snapshot of this really interesting time in history, of course, World War II, and in their lives. And again, for someone like me, who at least was familiar with the names Cahoon and Moore, I didn't know this period of their work at all. I only knew of their photography experiments from the 20s, really. Mm -hmm. So can you give us an idea? What was their life like? And where were they based in the 30s at the outset of the war? So after spending about 20 years or so in Paris, so they leave Nantes, they move to Paris right after World War I. As I said, they become connected to the avant-garde art scene. They make all of this amazing work. And then by the late 30s, they decide to leave, to leave Paris. And they do so for a number of reasons, partly because Lucy has some chronic health issues. They were very politically engaged. They were friends with communists and others sort of on the political left. But Paris was becoming more and more uh, a more difficult place. It was very politically polarized. There were fascist groups in the streets. There were different political parties and groups fight, literally fighting each other in the streets of the city. So Paris had become a very difficult place. And of course, the depression on top of that. So for all of those reasons, they had also recently inherited some money. They decided to leave Paris and move to the island of Jersey. So Jersey is one of the Channel Islands just off the French coast. But it's so it's very close to France, but it's actually British, British soil. It's under the British crown. And so that's where they moved. They essentially retired, you could say. They bought a, a big house there with a lovely garden, and they wanted to spend their days peacefully painting and taking photographs and writing and just enjoying themselves. And when the Nazis arrived in 1940, obviously things had to change, but, but they had really tried to go there to, to seek some peace. But it, like I said, it didn't turn out that way. And that's something that I would love to talk about. But that was something I don't want to give away the ending of the story, even though, of course, <laughs> this is history. So it's not a spoiler necessary, but I do want to encourage people to buy the book. But that is really interesting is what ends up happening, as you mentioned, is that they don't necessarily have that piece that they were looking for and that they were actively working 
I, I suppose, for peace in terms of for the Allies, but they were actively trying to defy the Nazis around them. So could you explain a little bit of what they were doing and how they went about doing that? So the, the title of the book, Paper Bullets, refers to their resistance activity, which really took the form of note writing. And that seems very small and it seems very inconsequential and insignificant in some ways. But as I describe in the book, when they started writing these notes to the German occupation, so the German army had arrived on Jersey and the other Channel Islands in 1940, and Lucy and Suzanne have to decide what to do about it and whether to sit out or whether to flee to England or to resist. And so basically they, they write these notes because they are creative people. And so they're able to say, let's put our creative talents to work. Let's put our skills to work. Let's put our political sensibility to work to try to demoralize the German army through writing notes. And like I say, it seems small and it seems insignificant, but they did it for four years. And the secret field police, which was the, the police force, the German police force in the military that uh, governed occupied territories, collected these notes and hunted them basically for four years because demoralizing the troops was a, a serious offense. It was especially so because the, the Channel Islands, where this was all taking place, was a very strategically important part of the German army's defensive strategy. It was an area called the Atlantic Wall. And the Atlantic Wall refers to a series of fortifications starting in uh, Scandinavia and then running down through the Channel Islands and then down the coast of France. All of the defenses that were there made this a really important place for the German army. So again, demoralizing the troops was, was a serious thing. So it turned out to not be very, to not be insignificant for them to write these notes. The notes took all different forms. Sometimes they were poems, sometimes they were song lyrics, sometimes they were these kind of fictional dialogues between two soldiers. Sometimes they were body jokes. Sometimes they were insults directed specifically at Hitler or some of the other leaders uh, of, the, of Germany, Nazi Germany. And, and they were all written in German. That was the, one of the things that really made them different from a lot of other note writing, because there was lots of note writing during the war, but to be writing notes specifically to the German soldiers in German and also taking on the persona of a German soldier. So they were essentially pretending to be German soldiers as they were writing these notes. And it really disturbed the military. And so they hunted for four years to find out who was writing these notes. I love this so much. And you actually touched just now on something that I also really wanted to ask you about, which is that one of the things that I really like about this book in particular is that it takes me First of all, away from the traditional theaters in World War II that you think of. So we're not mm -hmm. based in France and Normandy at the D-Day and invasions. We're not in Germany, but we are on the Jersey, uh, on Jersey. So we're separated from it a little bit. And so you're showing us this really interesting place at a very crucial time that we might not know or get to see or hear a lot about. But the other thing that I really loved is that I think humor is a huge part of what goes into those notes. And I think even into the photography to, to a degree as well. And that's something I feel like most of us don't get to see or really understand a lot of when it comes to World War II. It is so dark. It is so dire, all with very good reason. But the fact that they chose to inject some of that subversive humor into these activities, I think is so fascinating. Could you speak a little bit to that sensation, that humor that these women would use? Yeah, I think the question of humor is something that is really important. And as, the, and, and as I worked on the project, I came to appreciate it, I think, more and more. Um, if you do go back to the photography 
that they did. And anyone who's listening, you can find more on my website, some of their photographs on my website, which is jeffreyhjackson.com. Or you can just do a search on the internet and uh, search for Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, and you can find all of these images if you really want to explore the images. But, um, but, but many of the photographs um, that they do in Paris in the 20s really do employ humor. They're clearly trying to play with ideas, play, especially with questions about gender. Because as a lesbian couple, they were already pushing boundaries around sexuality and sexual identity. They dressed in very masculine ways. Cahoon cut her hair very short. They would often wear men's clothes. So they were already kind of using, and I talk about it in the book, as a kind of gender, in many ways, gender humor. Because there's a one series of photographs that they take where Cahoon is dressed up like a weightlifter. And she has this kind of strange bodysuit on. And her hair is done in this 1920s flapper style, but written across her chest on this bodysuit that she's wearing is this phrase, I am in training, don't kiss me. I and love that. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you see the photo, it's hard to describe it uh, in words, but if you see the photo, you, you can tell that it's designed to be a kind of a joke. And so they were already doing that in, in some of that work that they had are now sort of famous for, but they carried that over into really a kind of dark humor during the war. My favorite of all in along this line is the banner that they hung up. So they painted a banner they hung it up in the church, which was basically right next door to their house. And it was also the churchyard where the where German soldiers who died during the war on Jersey were being buried. But the banner read, Jesus is great, but Hitler is greater because Jesus died for people, but people die for Hitler. Oh, and yeah. the joke basically was to say that Hitler has fooled everybody into making us think that he's worth dying for. But to place that in a church, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is to play with, you know, kind of ideas and, and people's values and people's beliefs. But to really be in your face and to force them, them to think about this kind of dark humor in a church where the soldiers are being buried. It was just a, a very daring and very dangerous thing to do because they had to carry this banner over and hang it up somehow. And But it, I think it really captures that sense of a kind of in-your-face dark humor that they really developed more and more throughout these notes. I think when I when you're looking at those photographs that you're talking about, especially from their earlier period before they are moving permanently to Jersey, I think there is that sensation of you have to admire their bravery because they really were going against and being subversive of a lot of the norms, especially the gender norms uh, of the time. And thinking about these women, they could have simply just sat back during the German occupation and just let things happen. But I am so amazed. You're talking about how it seems like such a small act, but it really was so daring and very dangerous. It seems like they really had to be extraordinarily careful for those four years and the ways that they would go and hide and slip these notes or pin them to the walls or fences. And I am, I'm very amazed and impressed by that. Yeah, I think the way I talk about it in the book is that basically they had been resistors all their lives. Mm. So starting from the time when they were teenagers and fell in love and also some of their early writing, Lucy's earliest writings were published in her father's own newspaper and Suzanne would do the illustrations. They were already pushing some of those boundaries, even in that very early work. And that going through the photographs, Lucy's writings, Suzanne's illustrations that she does, it's always there in some way or other. So in a way, you know, when I was trying to think about why they did this work, why they decided to be re resistors, because you're right, they could have easily just sat back and done nothing. They had money, they had a house, they could have closed the doors and just shut themselves off and stayed safe. 
but I think they chose to do this work because they had really had been resisting in one way or other their whole lives. They'd been politically involved. They had been thinking about these questions about how people are treated, about fairness, about human rights, certainly in terms of their own case as a lesbian couple. And so I think it was just a logical extension. And so that's why I think the work that they do during the war, all of this, this creative production that they do really has to be seen as a kind of extension of the work that they do during their Paris years. Absolutely. And talking about Jersey, I want to talk a little bit about your process as a historian. How long did it take you to research and write this book? Because I know that you mentioned to me that you went to the island of Jersey itself, which is fantastic. What was that like? Well, I think I went back and looked uh, at my notes and I think start to finish the book took about seven years to do. Um, and it is very deeply, it's all, you know, nonfiction. It's all deeply uh, grounded in archival research and in facts and in documents. And the, there's a large cache of their documents actually at Yale University in their special collection. So I spent some time at Yale looking at that. But then I did go to Jersey and I wanted to go partly because there are other documents there in the archive that, that I couldn't get elsewhere. But also I just wanted to get a feel for the place too. What was it like to walk those streets? What was it like to, to see their house, to, to see the ocean, the, the bay right outside their back door? What was it like to experience some of those spaces? And, and Jersey is a wonderful place. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm looking forward to going back hopefully soon if I can. And I can under, totally understand why they would want to go and retire there. It's, a, it's an island, but it's not a tropical island. Of course, it's in the English Channel. Um, but it has relatively mild temperatures still, it has palm trees actually, but it also has this fog that rolls in sometimes very quickly. In fact, it, I think the plane that I was on was almost delayed because the fog was about to come in and they said, we have to hurry. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it has some of the highest tides in the world on Jersey. So when the tide goes out, you can actually walk out into the bay where the water has emptied out and see a walk on the stones and, and even out to this one sort of fortress that's, out, that's normally surrounded by water. But when the tide is out, you can actually walk out to this fortress along the, the coastline. So it's just a, a beautiful space. And, and it's, it's kind of, in many ways, an English-French hybrid. A lot of the place names and a lot of the old family names are French names, but, it's, but English is the main language. They use British money. It's under the English crown. So it's a halfway place between England and France in a lot of ways, both literally and figuratively. And that made a lot of sense for Lucy and Suzanne because they were French, obviously, and spoke French. But they also had spent a lot of time in England as well. They spoke English. And even though all of Lucy's writing is in French, all of Suzanne's writing that I was able to find is in English. And yeah, so there was a lot of, you know, you, you can see it very much as a kind of crossroads place. In Jersey, what did you find there in terms of other archival documents or information that was integral to your completion of this book? Some of it was some of their own work, some of their own material that didn't exist in the Yale collection or in any of the other places that I uh, had found. But it was also really important, I think, to get a good sense of the occupation experience and mm -hmm. to look at the documents surrounding that figure out what was the context in which they were living. Because as, as you said earlier, this is not a, an area of World War II or not a topic in World War II that a lot of people really know a lot about or talk a lot about. And I sometimes talk about this as the World War II story you've never heard before. Yes, um, yeah. Because for so many people, especially in the United States, it's we just don't even know. We, you know, if, even if we know the Channel Islands do exist, we don't necessarily know this part about the war. I think the British know a little bit more about the Channel Islands because it is British territory, but, but even then it's still not talked about very much. So I think getting, spending that time in the Jersey archive was really helpful to, to understanding and fleshing out some of the wartime experience as well. And like I said, even just being in the place, seeing their house, I didn't get to go in the, in the house 
itself, but being able to walk around it and to understand the relationship between their house and some of the other sites around the island was it was just a wonderful trip. And like I said, I'm looking forward to going back. Well, you've definitely, I I have a list that will be never ending of places I would (laughs) like to visit. And you've definitely made me add Jersey to it because you've made it it almost became a character in and of itself, the way that you painted it. I felt like I was there in so many moments because it just seemed like a beautiful, very restful, lovely place, I think. There's more Marcel and Claude and more of me and Jeffrey coming right up. So stay with us after this message. I love using the new year as an opportunity to plan out fun activities that allow me to discover new things about myself and new interests to indulge. And it's just as important for me to help my child to do this too, so that he can make the same exciting discoveries. And with a KiwiCo subscription, your child can discover something new all year long. Kids can find the joy of engineering and mechanics behind everyday objects, the science and chemistry of cooking, geography and culture from new places and brand new art and design techniques all through seriously fun hands-on projects i've got a kiwi crate coming to me and i am so excited that i get the chance to share an opportunity to learn and have fun with my young son it's going to be our first crate and so we are literally counting down the days until it comes here kiwi allows us to get some super cool hands-on science art and geography projects delivered to our door every month we are especially excited about receiving the atlas crate full of immersive hands-on steam-based activities that will help us explore and appreciate world cultures it is going to be perfect for my little traveler and everything kiwi is high quality so these are real engineering science and art projects for children and also for kids of all ages and that includes adults all of us who are big kids at heart And there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel anytime. So redefine learning with play. Explore hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking all year long. Get 50% off your first month, plus free shipping on any crate line with code ARTCURIOUS at KiwiCo.com. That's 50, 5-0% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com, promo code ARTCURIOUS. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2022, then why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for wireless? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. Plus, you get to choose the amount of monthly data that's right for you and stop paying for data that you will never use. By going online only and eliminating traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you. So how's that for an easy way to make good on your savings resolution this year. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped directly to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash artcurious. That's mintmobile.com slash artcurious. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash artcurious. 
After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters I can love and hate. Is that too much to ask? I certainly don't think so. And thanks to Sundance Now, I always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can be obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series A Discovery of Witches. This is the final season of the fan-favorite fantasy series based on the All Souls trilogy by Deb Harkness. And it is the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. All three seasons are streaming right now on Sundance Now. The Los Angeles Times calls A Discovery of Witches elegant and satisfying, and TV Guide proclaims it pure catnip for fans of this genre. And for an immersive and provoking series, I truly couldn't ask for more. You can stream Sundance Now on all your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and using the promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's SundanceNow.com, code ARTCURIOUS, one word. For 30 days of free streaming, SundanceNow.com, code ARTCURIOUS. Hunting down answers to your questions can be so rewarding. But when it comes to hiring, you don't always have as much time as you'd like to spend finding those great candidates with all the right skills. That's why there's Indeed, the best hiring partner your team can get. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Indeed Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. According to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide, and Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in 2019. Join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash art. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash art to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash art. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. May I ask, what is next for you? 
I've, I am working on another project. I, I don't want to say too much about it because you never know. It's in the early stages. Totally it, okay. It may all fall <laughs> apart. Uh, <laughs> I know what that's like. Um, it's all good. <laughs> but right now I'm working on uh, something very different. Actually, it's a Cold War story. Um, moving a little bit forward in time. And it, it's something that happens in Berlin during the Cold War. And I've, it's a story I've always been fascinated with. And I'm working on that right now, but, uh, but still talking about paper bullets and still giving various talks and events and, and interviews like this one. And it's uh, so great to, to keep talking about that because there's this, the story is really just so rich. We haven't even talked about when, when they get arrested or put I on know. trial. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because part of me, I, I think that was one of the moments it happens about halfway through the book that the arrest happens, I believe, but I didn't want to necessarily bring that up in case we wanted to keep people listening, so I'm glad you mentioned it. But I have to say, it's even though I've suspected and you felt like it was going to come, it still felt like this surprising moment in the book where it made me catch my breath because you're just on the side of these women so much and they're risking so much that you just don't want them to get caught. And when they do, I think that turns everything so much. If you brought it up, would you like to talk a little bit more? About sure, we can. What that points. Yeah. We can certainly talk a, a little bit about that because I think in some ways it, it goes back to this point about that they're resistors for their whole lives, and I think that continues on even during the time that they're in yes. prison. One of the things that I had to confront and that I sometimes talk about is that there's so many things about this story that are not what you expect, and so when they get put in prison, I think we have a kind of image from movies and documentaries about what a, what a German Nazi prison looks like, and this defies those expectations too. They're not beaten. They're not physically abused. It's not a physically uh, traumatic uh, experience for them, but it is mentally traumatic because they do wake up every day basically thinking, okay, today's the day we're going to be executed. So they spend about eight months in prison and the whole time they're, they, they don't know what's going to happen. And yet at the same time, they are also pushing back. They're also finding ways to connect with other prisoners. They're still passing notes. <laughs> they yes. still... They still they're communicating with people on the outside. So in, in many ways, they're just continuing that work that they've been doing for four years. They just keep going and they never stop. And then the trial, when they are finally put on trial by the court martial, the same thing happens. They're very honest about what they did. They don't try to deny it. They don't try to put up a defense. They say, yes, you came and occupied our island. And so, of course, we fought back. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and and they, they so there's a lot of drama in the courtroom that the court, the the officers in the court martial try to figure out why are you doing this and they you know, there's a lot of back and forth and there's a, there are actually a lot of humorous moments I think in the trial too but all really done still with that spirit of kind of resistance and defiance and a sense of um, you know of pride of, of what they've done that they, they own it they're glad what that they've done this work and so they are very you know willing to admit to it and then of course you know I'll leave here's a cliffhanger I'll say they're sentenced Ooh, to yes. death oh yes <laughs> Good. Um, and then, you know, we'll let folks then buy the book to see what happens. But they are sentenced to death and they for trying to demoralize the, the troops. And they're also sentenced to hard labor. They're sentenced to a number of things. And this is one of, one of those moments of humor because Lucy, I think, says, now, let, let's see, are we supposed to do the hard labor first and then the death sentence? Or are we supposed to do the death sentence first and then the hard labor? In other words, she's <laughs> toying with them uh, a little bit. Um, I love that. But just within this realm of, I'm just trying to logically determine how this is going to go forward. It's that's right. so great. Right. So it's, it's just, to me, it's just part of who they were. It's who their personalities, you know, what they were like as people. And, and they stayed true to that till the very end. I have to thank you so much for this book because one of the things that I love as an art historian is getting to know more about artists that 
I haven't been able to learn a whole lot about. And I love being introduced to new people, new works of art. So you've certainly helped to expand my own uh, interest and knowledge with this book. So thank you very much for writing it. And before we head off today, I wanted to know if you would be open to doing a couple lightning round questions. Very fun, very casual. Sure, I'd be happy to. Awesome. Okay, so lightning round. Who are, besides Cahoon and Moore, who are your favorite artists? Uh, uh, that's such a hard... <laughs> I know. <laughs> question. I'll say, I asked this when I told you my wife is an art historian and, and mm-hmm. maybe on our first or second date, I can't remember, I asked her this question. I said, "Who's your? what's your favorite painting? I think I said. Oh, yeah. And she had a ready answer, but then she is an art historian too. So Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I will say I love the, and some of this comes out of my earlier work on the book about jazz, looking at the, the paintings of Toulouse-Lautrec and the kind of cabaret scene in Paris in the late 19th century, early 20th century. I love those. I, it's just so hard to pick one or to pick the one moment. In my classes, my history classes, I, I teach a lot of art. I put a lot of, of images and paintings and, and things on the screen for the students because it really does get them into the, the kind of moment. And, and those Toulouse-Lautrec are just so great for doing that, for trying to capture yeah. that sense of what is it like to be in Paris in the late 19th century. So you know, if I thought about it for another few hours, I'd probably come up with five or six more. But since this is the lightning round, I, I'll end it I at love that. it. I love it. And I am absolutely with you. I often tell people that it depends on the day who my favorite artist would be or my favorite work of art. So right. it's wonderful. <laughs> what is your favorite recent book, either fiction or nonfiction that you've read? Oh my gosh. I was trying to think, what have I even read lately? Most of what I've read is... <laughs> Most of what I've read is for, for my classes. I just finished teaching a, a course on the Cold War in Europe, and we read a book in the class called Red Love, and it was a book about, it's a, written by a journalist named Maxime Leo, and he talks about him, himself, but also his family growing up in East Germany during the Cold War years. And my students absolutely loved this book, and I loved it too. I thought it was a really great, very it's a family account. So it's not just him. He also talks about his grandparents and his parents. And so if you're looking for a kind of, I know it's not about art, but if you're looking for a sort of account of, of the experience of growing up in East Germany in the 60s, 70s, I thought it was an amazing book. I love that. I've, I have not heard of that. So I'm adding it to my list. I'm literally taking notes while <laughs> we're speaking. What are your favorite time periods in history? Well, the time periods that I've always focused on in my research and and to some extent in my teaching too, but especially my research has always been that kind of late 19th, early 20th century Europe period. That's really where I cut my teeth as a historian. That's why the first book that I wrote called Making Jazz French was about Paris in the 20s, although clearly going back a little bit to the late 19th century. So really it's that kind of turn of the century moment. I think probably that's where I'm know the most and just I'm fascinated with I just there's so much happening in that period the 1880s 1890s and then early World War One and early uh, 20th century it's I still feel like after all these years of reading about that and teaching about that that I, I'm still trying to untangle that in my mind because there's so many things that are happening um, in that time period it's such a rich moment you are speaking right to my heart because that's also <laughs> one of my favorite periods it's, oh, wow. I agree it's like how can you not love what's going on there's so much happening right what is your writing style if you can describe it in three words 
my writing style, you mean like my process or how I... I think, yeah, we can say process or what it looks like on the page. How would you describe either? Um, in terms of what it's like on the page, I, I want it to be narrative. I want there to be a story. I want it to be descriptive, getting people at ground level. I always talk, maybe that's a, a good phrase too, ground level. Ooh, I because like that. that's what I always tell my students in my courses that we try, I try to get us down to the ground level lived experience. You know, what's it like to be in this place at this time? What's it like to be somebody living in this moment? And I think I've tried to bring that into my, to my research. And I think both Paper Bullets and, and, uh, and also the last book, Paris Underwater, were really about these kind of moments, um, really focused and really getting you into the nitty gritty of it. So that's more than three words, I guess. But uh... <laughs> No, that's that's whole part of this. I love that. It's like I said, some people want to describe and talk about it. And that's what I love about these lightning rounds. Um, what is your hidden talent? My hidden talent. It's even hidden for me, I think. I have to stop and, to stop and think about it. There's a game that I play on, the, on my iPad that I'm really good at. <laughs> what is it? I can't remember the name of it. It's... <laughs> flow free I think it is oh my um, gosh. and I can do them really fast I love <laughs> like a, it that um, is a hidden talent I and I'm it. teaching my seven-year-old how to do them too so oh, um, other than that I don't know I'm not I don't have a lot of I'm not hidden in a lot I'm pretty out there pretty open <laughs> <laughs> well here I'm going to give you a bonus question because okay. when we were first arranging this interview I sent you a little pre-recording uh, form that you filled out and you left this little nugget of information that I just have to know more about. You said that you were almost attacked by monkeys in Malaysia. <laughs> I need yeah, to know that's, more. That's like my one funny story. Uh, well, I probably have others, but it's the one that I go to. So I was visiting a friend in Malaysia and we were, we were hiking in this kind of nature preserve. And he said to me, they're there would be monkeys, but, but we were hiking up this one hill and I was looking down to make sure I wasn't going to trip and fall. And my friend who I think was walking behind me, he said, Jeff, there's a monkey by your head. And I looked up to my left and I saw this, it was a macaque monkey. And if you've ever seen the macaques, they have big teeth. And I started to back away from the monkey because it was so close to me. I started to back away and I let out this kind of, uh, this kind of instinctive scream, <laughs> kind of like a monkey almost, and not intentional. It was purely instinct. And I started to back away from the monkey and I didn't know what, what the monkey was going to do as I was screaming. Um, and we backed away and, and fortunately the monkey didn't take any offense at my, at my noises. <laughs> and so they went on, there was actually a pack of them. I think it was some, it, oh, there wow. might've been some young monkeys and mothers. I can't, I'm not sure exactly, but I think they ended up going on across the path and we just kept backing away <laughs> until oh we were gosh. at a safe distance. So, yeah, he did warn me in all fairness, my friend did warn me there would be monkeys, but I think he was also a little taken aback that they were quite so uh, close to us. Oh my gosh. And that's funny. I'm reading Mary Roach's most recent book right now. If you're familiar with her, she's a kind of a pop science writer. Right. I think I've her, read something of hers. Yeah. Her current book is called Fuzz and it is about these sort of encounters with animals and when the relationship goes a little haywire. And so I am learning a lot about monkey attacks right now. Oh, wow. So you're painting a very clear picture <laughs> and I, it's just enhanced by what I'm currently reading. <laughs> right. Well, 
Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on Fireside with me to talk about this book. I want again to encourage everybody. I loved reading this book and I hope that everyone will go ahead and grab their own copies because I can't uh, praise it highly enough. It's fascinating and these women are incredible and I would love to hopefully talk with you again in the future about their lives a little bit more. I'd love that. Thanks again for inviting me. It's been a wonderful conversation and sure, I'm, I'm happy to talk more at any time you want. And where can people find you? I know you'd mentioned your website a little earlier, but please feel free to plug more and tell them what else you've got and how they can reach you. Right. So my website is jeffreyhjackson.com and uh, you can find information about me. You can find information about this book and my other. You can watch, I have on there some videos and, and other recordings of different presentations that I've done about this work and other interviews that I've given. So if anybody wants to hear more or see more, you can, you can find that there. You can also, as I said, find some of the photos too that Cahoon and Moore did in the 20s and 30s in Paris, some of the famous work and also some of the maybe less famous work too. And so, yeah, feel free to check that out. That sounds great. So everyone, buy Paper Bullets. Go check out Jeffrey's website and his work. And we will see you back here next time on Art Curious Live. So thank you, everyone, for being with us here in the studio audience. Actually had a, quite a nice group of people with us in the studio today. And thank you most of all, Jeffrey, for joining me here. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. All right, everybody. Take care. Be curious. And I'll see you around next time. Thank you listeners for tuning into this bonus episode recorded live on Fireside. We'll be back with you soon as we prepare for the upcoming 11th season of our show and we will continue to do Fireside chats online. So stay healthy, stay tuned, and stay curious. 